Thank you for joining the worship services of Shoto, Brady, and Dutton United Methodist Churches. I'm Pastor Julie King, and I'm so grateful for digital technology that allows you to join us from wherever you are in the world. You can join us every week by clicking the links on our Facebook at facebook.com shotoumc or on our website at umshoto.net. If you like what we are doing and would like to financially support us in ministry, you can find more contact information on our website, and again, that's umshoto.net. We're so grateful that you are joining us. <laughs> so today, we are reading a passage about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I'm pretty sure um, there's different thoughts and theologies about it, what people thought that he was going to be the great conqueror and liberate them from Russian oppression. But my mind this morning thought, well, I think he did more than that. He liberated us from the oppression of our sin and the darkness. So that's my take on it. From Luke 19, uh, verses 28 through 40, Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. <clears throat> as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And as he's now approaching the path down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all their deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones themselves would shout out. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, Steve. Back to you. <clears throat> so, like I said earlier, today is Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday. It's a time where we hear of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we also shift to hearing the passion story of Jesus, which is the story of his arrest and crucifixion as well as we move into Holy Week. And it's often a time where we wave palms, just like Aiden did so beautifully, Wave palms around in worship, and we celebrate Jesus going into Jerusalem. And often the story of Jesus, it has the crowd of people laying down palm branches, just like you see here, on the ground like a red carpet as Jesus goes into town. And this is my, like I said, it's my favorite Sunday 
Growing up, I would collect all of the palm fronds, especially the ones that people left on that Sunday, and would make a bunch of crosses through the week before they dried out. And Lyle even printed out some directions on how to make uh, palm crosses. So if you'd like to do that, or you need something to fidget with during worship, please grab a hold of that. I know I forced many of you to do that while I was the pastor here. (laughs) And checked your work, too, I think. (laughs) Jesus' entrance had all of the same elements as a traditional Greco-Roman procession. There was the leader being escorted into the city by the citizens, the people that wanted the leader there. The procession was accompanied by hymns and acclamations, and it was a huge celebration and parade. But when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, it was almost Passover, So there were thousands and thousands of people that had made their pilgrimage to the temple to remember their liberation from Egyptian oppression. So there were a lot of extra people in town. And the odd thing that separated Jesus from the typical king and the differences we see in Luke's version of Jesus was that he was riding on a borrowed donkey on this colt The crowd was not your typical crowd that would have been greeting a king. Jesus was a faithful friend to the ones that no one else saw. So his whole flock of followers were kind of a ragtag bunch. And there were no palms in Luke's story. His group of followers and those cheering laid down their cloaks instead on the road. They were not expensive robes like kings would have worn. They were modest and shredded and dusty and most likely taken off of their own backs just to lay down for Jesus. But they still partied and chanted and yelled, Blessed is the king, Hosanna, those who come in the name of the Lord. We hear Luke say the same blessing that the angels cheered and shouted in the nativity story at early Luke. So I want to remind you exactly of who this ragtag group of people who would have been there for Jesus looked like. They are the ones who have experienced Jesus's gentle and healing power. These ordinary, likely overlooked people crowding around Jesus, amazed and grateful for what he had done. So in no particular order, the list of the people that Jesus approached in Luke's gospel. Simon's mother-in-law was healed of a sickness. One day, as the sun was setting on the Sabbath, people brought out those among them who were sick, and Jesus made his way through the crowd and healed all of them. A person with leprosy was cleansed, and then ten more were cleansed after that. Don't forget the man who was paralyzed on the side of the road and his friends lowered him through the roof to Jesus' feet. There was a man who had a withered hand and the centurion's servant was healed. A widow's son was raised from the dead. A demon-possessed man was healed. Jairus' daughter was healed. A woman who hemorrhaged for 12 years was healed. A boy with seizures 
a woman who was bent over for 18 years, a blind man was able to see again after a chat with Jesus. Jesus healed them all, no questions asked. And I think the most telling part of looking up all of these and listing all of these people who were probably in this crowd was to discover that none of them had a name in the gospel. In a culture where your name was everything, none of these people were given names. They were lost along the way in translation. Maybe their town is named or a family member, but their names weren't seen as important enough to be recorded. And indeed, most of them, the powerful people in Jerusalem in that day, these people were so void of earthly importance to them that they could be called faceless, nobodies. They were the them to, to the powers in Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't look upon this ragtag crowd with contempt or pity. Jesus knelt down as a friend, brother, servant, and looked each one of them in their forgotten faces and performed an act of healing love. This world leaves many of God's children faceless and forgotten and mired in the pain of rejection. But this is not how God sees us. Jesus shares our hardships and solidarity and accepts us where we are, and especially when others deny our existence and our worth. The people in that moment, in that crowd, stood and saying as living proof of God's love. But this is not where our story ends. With that Passion Sunday combo, there is a shift relatively quickly. The singing, the Hosanna shouts, the dancing, the celebrating, the hope of seeing their Jesus entering like royalty slowly shifts and then suddenly shifts into tension and questioning. And pretty soon, that crowd is shouting, crucify him. We don't know you. That betrayal and doubt, Jesus' crucifixion. Now, there have been a variety of human responses to Jesus throughout history. And specifically in the passion story, we see all of them. Jesus continued his work from the last few years, even with all of the extra people in Jerusalem for Passover. He was advocating for those who paraded him into the city. He shared a meal with his disciples in the upper room, a meal that we have shared for generations since. He tells Peter, sweet and faithful Peter, the rock, that he will deny Jesus three times. The cock will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. Peter, flabbergasted, that he could ever do that. Jesus goes to pray on the Mount of Olives and he returns to find his disciples asleep. 
Luke's gospel tells us that they are sleeping because they are already grieving. Judas, one of the disciples, leads the authorities right to Jesus. And Jesus asks, have you come with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? We hear Peter, in fact, deny knowing Jesus three separate occasions. And each one becomes more painfully obvious. Jesus is mocked and beaten. He stands before the council. The centurion finds no guilt. Pontius Pilate finds no guilt. He says, I find no basis for this accusation. But the crowds are insistent. They led Jesus to be crucified, a social humiliation on the edge of town. All travelers would see him die. Jesus carried his cross with the help of Simon of Cyrene. And then they crucified him. On any other day, next to two criminals, a huge crowd of friends and enemies watching. Jesus' last words in Luke's gospel in the Passion are, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he gave up his spirit. It can be really uncomfortable to ponder this idea of this crowd shifting. As we hear the palm entrance and the passion, Luke's gospel put these, puts these together for us to push us. Luke's story of no palms complements this passion story, hearing that we are the unnamed in the crowd, shouting hope. We are those questioning and in denial. And we are the them that Jesus refers to in his final prayer. This Lenten journey is ending soon, and we are moving toward renewal and resurrection, but we are not quite there yet. My favorite part of Luke's gospel with the no palms and the no guilt passion is that it is so on the nose. We all sway back and forth between those shouts of hope and those shouts of denial. We don't know you. Our faith and our discipleship are complex, and they are littered with our own stuff that we bring to it. As you all are most know, I work at Intermountain now with emotionally disturbed kiddos, and they've been through a lot, and they have a lot of stuff going on that they're working through. And working with these kind of kiddos has shifted my thinking and my beliefs in many ways, because kids similar to mine that I work with are often the them in a lot of conversations. And my goal as their chaplain is to, number one, advocate for them. And also to demonstrate that, in fact, 
they are the we as well. They are that ragtag bunch as well. And there is life beyond the them statement and identity that the world has given them. I design our lessons loosely around the kids' treatment goals, and it helps with the structure and the continuity that my lessons match what they're working on. But it also helps to teach them that their spirituality, whatever it looks like later, is a tool for building resilience. So they are often working on coping skills and how to trust adults because adults have not been trustworthy to them. They are working on making new neural pathways in their brains. As they experience our world, it can often feel terrifying and unsafe and unforgiving. And definitely that I don't know you feeling. And this is all done through relationship and connection and grace and patience. And back in February and March, I was trying to decide what to do as we got to Lent with these kids. It is not an easy topic for adults to sit in for 40 days, let alone for kids. And I realized that a lot of these kids, not just my kids, but many of the kids that we all know in our lives, many of the kids that we were when we were younger, shift between those two different shouts as well, just like we do as adults. My kids in particular have brains and hearts that shout, we don't know you a lot. And the world has confirmed those shouts by focusing on their behaviors instead of their feelings and the trauma and the experiences that have impacted those behaviors. So we finally got to Ash Wednesday, and I told the kids all about it, what Lent was, what we talked about, what we worked toward for Easter, and they were looking a little disheveled. And I said, you know, I feel like treatment is kind of like Lent. You work on this stuff every day. There's always somebody asking, how are you feeling? What are you doing? How are you going to make this right? What are these habits? And they kind of nodded. And I said, I think you all work hard enough at that. So let's. Let's focus on something else. Let's focus on building our hope with God instead. And they liked that idea a lot better. Uh, So we began an art gallery in the chapel area. And it's getting really full right now. I told them we need to do an art auction soon because I'm running out of wall space. But it's a place where they can hang up whatever artwork they've been working on. And if they want to display it for everybody else to see, um, they don't know, but it's also the space that all the staff train. So um, the staff get to see all the kids' amazing artwork. And, you know, some kids have had things every week, every day they want to hang up. That's how I was when I was a kid, um, always drawing something. 
but some of them are just coming around to wanting something that they did, something that they're proud of to hang up. And these pictures are more than just a dog or Spider-Man or whatever they've drawn, a portrait. Artwork, coloring, drawing is a coping mechanism. Lots of people love to doodle and color and draw, and it's because it's regulating, and it relieves stress, and it's relaxing. And that's exactly why the kids do it, too. It's healing. So this art gallery has become this kind of pathway of not palms that we have in our space, and it is a visible journey of healing. I know when these kids come in and they see their artwork hanging up, they remember what they were going through that day when they drew that or they colored that. May we see these places in our own lives where we shift back and forth from cheers of Hosanna to cheers and jeers of I don't know you. And may we have the bravery and the courage to find the ways to shift back to hope. Amen.